Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today I'm joined by Emily Newman, who is on the consulting team at Rodale and helps farmers navigate organic compliance as they transition to certified organic. She holds a BS in environmental resource management, focusing in soil science from Pennsylvania State University and is currently pursuing an MBA in food and agribusiness from Delaware Valley University. Prior to joining the team at Rodale Institute, she worked at Regulatory Compliance of Organics for a certification agency and materials review board. She is IOIA trained, a certified crop advisor and serves on a, as a board member for the Organic Materials Review Institute. Emily, welcome. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. So talk to me a little bit through, uh, you know, you've got a lot of accomplishments here. What got you into farming though? Yeah, so I knew I wanted to work outside. That was really it. I don't come from a farming background. I didn't grow up on a farm, um, but a lot of my family members uh, live in farming communities and had animals um, and and still currently do actually uh, live on farms. And so I kind of was surrounded by farms growing up, but didn't grow up on one. And I was really interested in, in soil science and mm. it really wasn't from an agricultural perspective either when I started getting interested in soil science. It was more from an environmental remediation perspective. And I uh, started learning about soil science as a freshman in college and, and realized that there was such a, a disconnect um, in my own life between soil and farming and um, started doing more research then. And uh, as a freshman had the opportunity to see uh, Ray Archuleta speak live Uh uh, uh at at an NRCS conference. And so it was, it was really inspiring to me to see this, this connection between, between agriculture and soil. Um, So I started working on a farm and it really just kickstarted what ended up being now a career in organic agriculture. Very cool. So uh, let's talk, uh, you know, you, what, talk to us about your role. So as an organic soil consultant, like what do you do? Uh, what's a day look like for you? Yeah, I have. Oh, my gosh. So my days are so different depending on on what's going on. But yeah, so my my title is organic crop consultant. I am um, the program manager for the consulting team at Rodale Institute. And we have a really awesome team that we've put together. Um, there's Sam Mauriat, he's the director of the program. Um, and then we also have Leah Varecki, she's in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, Nick Podell, he is in um, Minnesota. And so really we are working across the United States right now, uh, working with farmers as they you know, make a leap out of conventional agricultural production towards certified organic production. Um, on so many different levels, both with landowners, with businesses, 
um, with beginning farmers, with veteran farmers. And so we're really working with pretty much anybody who's interested in learning more about what choices they can make on their operation to to make that transition towards organic. So, you know, a day to day, I even think about today as this perfect example of, of what my day to day generally looks like. This morning, I started out with a phone call with a farmer in Texas asking, um, you know, talking about their pasture rotation plan. And then I, mm. I drove out to a farm about 15 minutes from where I live uh, to talk to a farmer about um, his livestock living conditions and potentially expanding his market opportunities into into organic um, into organic regenerative um, certification and then you know just got off of another call with a farmer in West Virginia who's planning his crop rotation for the year and we talked a lot about how to reduce tillage in his operation and how you know he can work on controlling weeds without having to to till constantly and cultivate constantly so you know it, it really my day varies but I, I often am popping between zoom calls with farmers mm-hmm. FaceTimes with farmers and then uh, on the occasion I, I get to drive out to the farmer and actually talk to them in person and see their operation. Yeah, absolutely. So then you're a lot of it's on the ground, then a lot of it's online. So for your folks that are located, let's say in Minnesota, are they working with farmers there on the ground or is a lot of it just Zoom calls too, or just over the phone? Yeah. So it, what's so amazing, you know, about agriculture is how it varies from region to region and even you know, I'm, I'm situated here in Pennsylvania and uh, the conversations I have with my Lancaster farmers look very different than the conversation I have with my normal Northern PA farmers. And so, you know, when we decided, you know, we were going to expand into the Midwest, that was really just a strategic decision by leadership to start expanding into the Midwest. Um, we knew we needed people who were ingrained in those communities um, and new agriculture in those communities. And so, um, you know, Nick's background is, is he's been in organic farming his whole life. His uncle um, was an organic farmer and his parents work in the organic farming business. And, and Leah in Madison, Wisconsin, she worked for Dr. Aaron Silva, which is really spearheading the organic no-till research. And so each of these people, you know, they come to the team with such an amazing mm. background that then translates so well to help other farmers troubleshoot some of these issues they may encounter in an organic system. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's talk a little about soil science, because that's always definitely something that I'm fascinated about. And uh, we actually work with a lot of farmers here on on, on a a lot more small scale. So we're looking, you know, usually a couple acres. But, you know, some of the stuff that we see is uh, pH is like the pH gets too high and then we're trying to push it back down. Where have you seen success with that? What do you find works well? You know, it's really interesting. We've actually, we see the opposite here in Pennsylvania is that the pH gets so low and we're, you know, mm. we're often pushing it a lot higher. And so actually don't have a ton of experience with, with high pH and pushing it down. Um, but, but yeah, we, we are more, I'm more experienced with the, with the lower pH side because in Pennsylvania with, with, um, yeah, we just, we need to lime on a fairly yeah. regular basis. <laughs> yeah. And then with lime, you're probably doing either the high cal if it needs calcium and low cal if it needs magnesium. 
Correct. Yeah. And, and that's with, you know, my focus with being in, with in organic production is that, you know, we're really focused on trying to find compliant sources of Lyme because, you know, right now there's, there's lots of Lyme available and you, you can purchase an ag Lyme, but that ag Lyme actually might be something that's prohibited like a slack Lyme or a burnt Lyme, which is uh, generally calcium oxide. And, and so organic farmers cannot use those sorts of products that have high CCE value and they're using those high mags um, and the, the low mags, and they're also using dolomitic lime. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um, and sulfur, you know, that's obviously something that's really important too. Um, mm-hmm. What are you seeing with that? That, I mean, that's an interesting question is we're really making recommendations based on, on soil test results. And so yeah. When it comes down to it, you know, we are an independent crop consulting team. Um, you know, we don't sell any sorts of products. Uh, and yeah. we're, definitely, we're definitely not here to sell any sorts of products. And so ultimately, we're making very unique operate or you're, we're making unique recommendations to our farmers based off of the results of their soil test and what they're intending to grow for the upcoming year. And so, um, you know, we we like to recommend soil testing once at minimum, sometimes twice per year. Um, and even if they're experiencing issues doing tissue testing during the year oh. as well on their crops. And, um, and that can really give a lot of insight to what's happening in the soil. So, you know, we really, even when it comes down to some of these like microbial products that are on the marketplace now, it's, it's not to say that they're not going to be beneficial, but, you know, we really like to use science-based research to back up what, you know, what recommendations we're going to make. Um, and that ultimately comes down as to what's occurring in the, their soil currently. Um, mm. And, you know, what, what amendments and adjustments we need to make to, to get the, the results that they're expecting. Gotcha. Now, how detailed of soil tests do you like to go for? Because obviously there's a wide range in what you can test. Do you have a specific um, range that you go for? Or does it really depend on where you are and what you're working with? Yeah, so we we always recommend just a chemical test generally. Um, that's the once a year, twice a year recommendations in the fall and the spring. Um, but right now there's been a, a lot of interest, I am sure by many of many of your listeners of, of like biological soil tests. And, um, and that's something that we've been seeing, you know, great value in recently. Um, they're being here on the East Coast, uh, Cornell really spearheaded that and yes. um, has, you know, their their soil test their soil health lab um but there's been so many other just private industry and also universities that have started offering um those sorts of results at a lower price point that makes it a little bit more accessible for for lots of different sized farmers um and i think i think that if a farmer has the opportunity to conduct some biological testing on their their soil again once a year um they're a little bit more expensive so if that's only a once every three years thing, you know, that's great too, but it really helps with like tracking the improvements over time, what's occurring in your soil, but then, you know, also what, what is not improving and what adjustments do we need to be making during the year to, to help counteract some of those issues we might be encountering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So another question is how many soil samples should you take? Cause obviously, you know, you're going to take a good different amount of, uh, 
of spots in a specific field, but how much should you break that field up? Because one of the things is like with a small vegetable farm, you can have like literally dozens of different variations in the field, but you probably don't want to take a test for each one of those. You want to kind of group them together. So you're not buying 20 tests. Is there a, a rule that you guys have on how that works or what's your thoughts around yeah. that? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, it really varies from operation to operation. But a good rule of thumb is if, if you know, let's talk like just about, uh, you know, a one or two acre vegetable operation. It's yeah. really nice to be able to split them up into management zones. And so, you know, if you have an area that you have, you know, for example, some perennial, uh, perennial fruits, and if you have some berries there, you know, that could be considered one management zone. So maybe you take five different subsamples and aggregate yeah into one sample. Um, and then you maybe have an area that is your perennial herb um, garden, then, you know, that can be one management area as well. And then maybe you have a half an acre to three quarters of an acre left over that you're doing um, your annual crops and maybe do two different samples. You know, you take five subsamples from the north side and five subsamples from the, the south side and um, and aggregate that. So really, it, I, I think that it's, it's best if you do some of these like aggregate samples where you take, you know, some people suggest five, other people suggest 10 subsamples. Um, I think five on a small operation is, is generally a good rule of thumb. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Five to 10. Um, let's talk about the hydrogen in the soil. Cause that's something I, I really have a hard time understanding sometimes of why it shows up. And sometimes like, like it seems like the longer a farm is operational, sometimes the hydrogen is just like it doesn't exist on the soil test. Um, like the other day I was looking at a test and his brand new plots had like 10% hydrogen, but the other plot that had been there for a while had zero. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that. So, you know, you're really getting outside. I know I said I have a soil science degree and I do have a soil science degree. <laughs> really where I, you know, I look at, I'm really looking at the big picture sometimes yeah. with, with our farmers and, and I, as much as it is really nice to get into these little nitty gritty things, these, you know, the hydrogen amount, what, what, what are, should our sulfur ideally be? Um, you know, I think ultimately if we're talking about soil health as a whole, we need to start thinking about, you know, really the bigger picture, which is, you know, what applications of inputs are we putting on? And what is our cover cropping plan and how are we resting our soil from when it's, you know, getting its cash crops in and out. So, you know, that is really where a lot of my focus lies is, uh -huh. is taking that, that information that Rodale, um, you know, has published through their, their many years of studying and uh -huh. some of these bigger picture items of, you know, what are, what are the best cover crop selections that we can, we can choose for different times of year and, and how can we really break up, you know, a farm so it's not just in this this monoculture of you know even if it's just a you know a vegetable operation you know we're not just doing you know one one group of nightshades and you know and then rotating it out and then you know like I think about especially in vegetable operations you know there's lots of high tunnel uh, production and and farmers start to see issues because you know they do tomatoes and then they do cucumbers and then they do tomatoes and they do cucumbers after yeah. that and then they say well my tomatoes looked horrible this year and I had all these pest issues what's the issue it's you know it, it's ultimately that we're just we're 
spending too much time with the cash crop in the ground and we need to be, you know, focusing on you some rest, uh, some adding in of additional amendments um, and, and taking the time to allow it to get some weather on it. So, you know, I, as much as I, I love the detail chemistry of it all, uh, you know, my conversations with farmers are really like large scale, um, you know, farm planning of how do we, mm-hmm. how do we, how do we take that information and actually implement it on a, on a macro level. Gotcha. So let's talk about someone who is, let's say they're conventional and they want to go organic. And so maybe they've been in corn and beans and they're thinking maybe they're going to transition somewhat in the pasture for like beef cows or something. What's usually the steps for that? Yeah. So we get a lot of calls from farmers who, you know, have been and very much just conventionally farming um, for, for many, many years. And, and so, you know, an average size farm in Pennsylvania for that is about 300 acres. You know, you start getting a little bit bigger when you're in the Midwest. But, you know, if we're talking about a 300 acre conventional farm, we, we really encourage our farmers to take it step by step um, approach. And so, um, you know, this transition is as much as we're here to help farmers transition to certified organic, we're, we're also here to help farmers transition into better practices. So it doesn't have to be just about the fact of, okay, stop using chemicals and, you know, put your land in pasture and I'll talk to you in three years. It's more about, you know, let's talk about your goals. Is, is your goal uh, meeting a certain yield? Is your goal meeting a certain income? Is your goal meeting a certain percentage of organic matter on your soil test results. And, and so everybody's goals are so differently so different. So, you know, we really start with trying to figure out what are the goals of that specific operation. And so if they were thinking, you know, I, I don't want to till the land, I want to put this into a permanent pasture and we want to, um, you know, rotate some cattle on it and, you know, maybe rotate it in and out of small grain production. We're really talking about, you know, looking at those soil test results, seeing, okay, where's our baseline? What are we at? Do we have any issues we need to address? And again, here it's a lot of it is we might need to address some pH issues. We may have some, you know, low phosphorus and potassium and nitrogen just from pulling crops off year after year. So maybe there's some newer applications we need to be making before we put it into a permanent sod. Um, and, and generally we're recommending a grass legume blend depending on where they are in their location and um, letting it rest for a year before slamming some cattle on it right away, allowing for some time for it to, to grow. Um, and, and then, yeah, if they have, um, what infrastructure they have a lot of farms, if they're coming straight out of grain production, they, they might not even have the fencing infrastructure Mm. needed to implement a system like that. So, um, oftentimes we, we recommend hooking them up with some funding sources, maybe some state grants or some federal grants to help implement some better, um, pasture management practices. Maybe it's electric fencing, maybe it's permanent fencing. Um, Maybe it's a livestock water crossing because they have a stream running through their property and we need to build a buffer area so that, you know, the the cattle is not destroying the stream. And and then after we have those conversations about what are the conservation practices that are needed, then we can start having a conversation. Okay, how do we make this certified organic? How do we get you a price premium for the work that you're doing? Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when people are moving to that 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 pasture going from like a, a grain to a pasture, they usually plow that between or they do like a no-till transition with a no-till drill? 
Yeah, so it really it really depends. Um, if they're going from from grain to pasture, um, there's a couple different different options that they, that can be considered. And you know, I'm actually dealing with this right now with a farmer, and um, there they were in conventional soybean production, and and the farmer wants to transition to organic, and and they have a little bit of risk that they're able to assume, so they're going to just put it into a cover crop for a year or two years before or considering what their next cash crop is going to be for their organic harvest. And so um, this is a little different is that they're not planning on grazing. They're actually not really even planning on making any money off of this small portion of their operation as they start making that transition to organic. And so um, the land was bare when the soybeans came off in November. And so it's been bare through the winter time, which is not something we'd normally yeah. Yes, but she, they, they didn't have any opportunity, you know, they didn't even have access to the land until January. And so, you know, there's, there's two different options in here, which is the first option is, you know, a frost seeding option of, of like a medium red clover is that you can kind of get into the field um, to, to broadcast seed during this freeze thaw cycle um, as uh -huh. it gets colder and warmer. Um, and what's really good about that is that, you're not really disturbing the soil in any way. There's no tillage event really needed because the freeze thaw cycle is making that seed to soil contact for us, yeah. um, which, which is excellent. Um, you know, there is also some issues that come with that method, uh, which is if your soil test results are a little out of balance and you need to make um, you need to make soil amendments. We actually talk about this internally within the consulting team is that if you add a fertilizer when it's bare ground and there's no seed, you're just fertilizing the weeds. So it's yes. never a good option. Yeah. Um, so if, if that, if that route doesn't work, um, you know, we then take the, the route of tillage. Um, and that is really, we just want to do one tillage event so that we can establish a good solid seeding, get that great seed to soil contact, make any any amendments that we need to so that we don't have to till again for you know two three years afterwards and we can really just make that one event to establish something really great get that green cover on immediately so uh. it, it really really depends um it depends on a number of factors yeah. but i would actually say you know interestingly enough is that we're not seeing a ton of farmers wanting to go from classic conventional corn and soybean into um, a pasture for an organic rotation, it, it actually generally what we're seeing is the land has been um, in the CREP program in CRP for maybe five, 10, 15 years. And so it's kind Interesting. of permanent sod that is generally kind of full, full of weeds because it's been, yeah. you know, unmanaged in a sense. And, and they're, they're, we're getting a lot of phone calls to say, okay, what, what's, what's the next step now? I want to be in organic production. I, I want to be in organic something, whether that is a grain rotation or, you know, making a permanent pasture, doing some hay cuttings. Um, and, and, that is where it gets a little tricky is because you've got this permanent sod, you've got a pretty strong weed seed bank after, after 15 years of just kind of, you know, light mowing every once in a while per your contract. 
Um, and so that's really where, you know, we, we struggle internally, of course, you know, we want, we want to make the best recommendations we possibly can, which is reducing tillage and um, making suggestions for inputs that are um, natural and, um, and non-synthetic and um, are good for soil building. But it's really difficult to come out of the CRP and directly into a grain without some sort of disturbance of the soil surface to, to allow for some good seed to soil contact to get a good crop in there. So again, we can focus on growing one good yeah. crop so we can follow it um, and reduce the amount of tillage in our system in the long term. Yeah. So that's actually the reason I asked that specific question is I've actually had to do that a couple of times. Um, the new farm we just bought, we came out of, you know, conventionally, well, no till corn and beans for probably 60 years. Mm -hmm. And, and so literally like those herbicides and last year they put on 11 different herbicides or 12 different herbicides. I mean, it was two, four D it was, you know, um, dicamba, it was roundup. It was, you know, all the, the fun ones. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, just after coming out, just watching that weed seed bank just explode, yeah. um, it just it blew me away even. So we, we harrowed it a couple of times just because mm -hmm. we're going to the vegetables and with vegetables, you know, weeds are really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, so we harrowed it a couple of times and then it went into a cover crop and we saw some weeds come back and then we no tilled a second cover crop and it looks pretty good now, but, um, I'm still worried about some of those weeds coming back next year. Um, and, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think like, it's, it's really cool to hear you say how, you know, you, you did it once and then you follow with a no-till drill to do it a second time is, and that's really what it is, is it's, it's taking the time um, and knowing that the first year you're not going to bury everything. There's no way, even, you know, if you're just going through and disking, you know, you're never going to be able to bury every, all the weed seeds in the bank. But, you know, if you take the time like mowing it and then reseeding and mowing and reseeding, you know, over, over the long term you can really reduce the, the weed seed bank. But yeah, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, after years of like herbicide applications, the weeds explode. And it's just because, you know, we've been masking the problem. We yeah. Haven't, yeah. We haven't been solving the problem. We've just been masking the problem. And it's really interesting, the amount of, of uh, perennial weeds that came back. Um, mm -hmm. Like we had uh, a vining milkweed, which is a, was a brand new one for me. And then of course we had some bindweed and there was some uh, Canadian thistle and uh, I don't think we had any perennial grasses. So we didn't have any quick quack grass or not a lot of Bermuda either. So a lot of it was those annuals with those exceptions right there, but fascinating just to kind of see, you know, what it looks like once you kind of open that ground back up, but those herbicides literally it's, you know, they're only effective for a very short time. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, thriving farmers. Have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about, you know, some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, these folks that come to you. They want to go from the CRP or they want to go to an organic crop system. Mm -hmm. um, 
and three years is a long time. If they're going, you know, they're going to get certified. What are they doing in the transition years? Are they, um, are they just selling stuff on the open market and taking a loss? How do they weather that transition normally? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. There's so many different options for farmers right now for their transition years. And, um, you know, I'll mention a few a few options that might be of interest to some to some listeners. And, and so some of those is, you know, we get contacted by, um, you know, just recently I was out to visit a farmer. She had been farming um, organically on some rented ground and just recently purchased her very first farm with her husband. And, um, they they want to get certified organic. That's all she knows how to do. She only knows how to grow certified organic um, vegetables. And, uh-huh. and but the land she of course purchased was in conventional agriculture. And so you know she's in this situation where she's trying to build a farm in in a new area and build a great market and tell a story about about her operation as an organic farmer. But um, unfortunately, she's unable to get certified until at least two years from now, um, following 36 months of free from prohibited substances. And so, you know, me, we've had a lot of conversation about, you know, what what is the opportunity to during this time to hopefully both tell the story of 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 her farm of what she's doing, but then also attract that that premium for the fact that she is doing, you know, everything organically, she's doing everything correctly. And, and one of the things that we always talk about is, is just telling your story. And um, one, I think one benefit that, you know, not to just plug our program, but just using Rodale as a platform to tell the story of the farmer. And so, you know, we've had some interviews together that, uh, you know, we've written about her operation so that she can use that information to, to truly tell the story of what she's doing Mm -hmm. to improve soil health and um, to make, to, to make that transition to organic and what that actually looks like and the hard work that a farmer has to put in uh, to make that happen. And so I think that's really helped her um, in the long run. I really, I really hope so, but um, you know, it's really great to see farmers continue to stay dedicated to the organic transition, even though, you know, they're not able to use that USDA seal, but you know, that's, and that's generally a vegetable operation. And I'd say in general, probably similar to a lot of your listeners is that many of those farmers are farming organically. <laughs> like they, they're yeah. using all the correct practices. They're, they're maybe, maybe the only slight disconnect is that they're just maybe not documenting everything in, you know, in an organic compliant fashion. Um, but I'll say that, you know, a lot, and there's, and I think there's probably a lot of myth surrounding this is that you have to do a 36 month transition. And that's not true. The 36 month transition starts from the last prohibited substance state. So mm-hmm. if somebody's considering getting certified organic, you know, and they've been farming organically, as long as they have some documentation to, to showcase that, then they could, you know, ideally get certified, you know, at any given time. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of our farmers are often in that position when they call us as they say, well, I've just been doing this and I finally want to get the premium for doing it. And I want to, I want to use the USDA seal. I want to have access to these different markets. And so, so that's just, that's one option. Um, And, and I'll say, you know, that's, and that's our vegetable farmers, but, you know, we do work with a a fair number of grain farmers and um, what we're really pushing for and and have had a lot of great support from um, the private sector is, is transitional contracts. So that, you know, the farmer can start their transition and they can get a small premium during those 
two seasons of transitioning. Uh, so that can help buffer the costs uh, during during their organic transition. And then on year three, you know, they are locked in on an organic contract as well. So basically, we're looking at like a three to seven year contract with some of these for these grain farmers that they're able to, you know, farm farm con organically while they're still considered technically conventional or in transition and get a small premium that's buffering, you know, maybe they need to uh, make some additional equipment costs or some equipment changes, or maybe there is um, some increased labor costs during that three years. And that really, you know, that additional income that they're getting during this transition period through some of these transition contracts that are starting to come about really help with that. Um, if that transition contract doesn't exist in, in the marketplace, um, then we generally suggest a couple different routes. Um, one of those is that it really depends on Again, the amount of risk the farmer can assume. Uh, if the farm farmer needs to be continuing their crop rotation of you know corn and soy um, to to get that income, so that in year three they can sell a certified organic crop. Um, then, then we try to help them navigate a non-GMO market. And um, right now they can get about 50 cent premium on corn for non-GMO and about a dollar premium on soybean uh, non-GMO. So that, that helps a little bit as well. But really ultimately, you know, the best scenario possible is that they are working on transitioning land in a piece piecemeal um, opportunity. So they're, they're maybe taking 10 acres or 50 acres of their 300 acre farm and um, putting some of it in, in cover crops and allowing it to rest and really focusing on um, addressing some of the soil needs and then continuing maybe farming conventionally on the rest of the land, getting an income on the rest of the land, and then just making that transition step by step. It doesn't need to happen overnight and it definitely doesn't need to happen in three years. It can happen over, you know, the uh -huh. course a decade if that's, yeah. if that's what they need to choose to make it happen. Yeah. You know, I just got a, a message on our Facebook page and unfortunately, you know, I don't get to respond to all of them because there's just so many that we get. Yeah. Um, but someone, uh, this woman reached out and she says, how does one even get started in such an expensive industry? My dad is a conventional monocrop corn and soybean um, no-till and it's littered with pesticides and herbicides. I would, it would cost millions to buy him out, which I do not have that kind of money and no bank would ever give me a loan or even half his seed bill. I do not want a monocrop. I want, you know, she, then she goes into talking about how she wants to do regenerative agriculture and the different people she's following and all the things she wants to do. And, um, but I think it comes back to what you just said is, you know, obviously like the problem with conventional agriculture and the problem with how it runs is just, there's so many expenses out there. I mean, like look at the half million dollar equipment and the cost of farmland. And, you know, as she's saying, the cost of the seed bill, but I think, you know, you know, kind of, you know, talk a little bit about that. I mean, and the essence of this too is like, yeah, she's not gonna have those millions of dollars. And if her father is not interested in her taking over and just wants her to buy him out, that's going to be incredibly hard, but it's, but there is a way forward. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. I've had, <laughs> I actually had a very interesting conversation similar to this route with a, um, <laughs> a John Deere tractor engineer <laughs> that was mm. in, in Iowa. And, um, you know, he was asking me, Emily, like, how do you even 
even how can we even make this work in the Midwest? You know, and I'm I'm making the assumption that this particular person, you know, the Facebook comment is is from the Midwest, but I would assume, you know, based off yeah. of the size of land, she's talking about a tract of land that it's she's probably somewhere, you know, between North Dakota and Texas. Yeah. So um, and so, you know, with that, it is that like it's it's true the the conventional industry got so big so fast and the opportunity to you know like for any of these people to buy out a conventional farm that's 10,000 acres you know 15,000 acres is is nearly impossible and so um what we've had a lot of successes is um you know with with our farmers in the midwest is again smart starting really really small um and so some some examples of of how that transfer of land ownership from one generation to the next has looked successful is um just starting by taking some land out of conventional production, maybe that is the most vulnerable land and putting it into CRP or CREP um, and just getting a small payment for that land to be kind of out of conventional production for a period of time. Uh So maybe, maybe that's 5% of your land. Maybe that's a vulnerable piece of land that's near, you know, a stream or um, a water area and just taking that out of conventional production and allowing it to get a payment for a period of time. Maybe that's five Years, maybe that's 15 years. Um, but then when it comes out of CRP, it is it is going to be eligible for organic production. Now, going back to our previous conversation, it is difficult to come out of CRP if you're not willing to till um, a little bit or some soil disturbance, but it is a way to continue to get some payment on some land where it doesn't have to be monocropped. It can be, it can be a different option. And then the other step would be then taking some land, you know, maybe just a small portion, maybe it's just one of the tracks, or maybe it's just one small farm within this larger farming um, thing. And, and just start experimenting, start figuring out how you can implement cover crops in the rotation. It doesn't even have to be, you know, we don't have to totally take everything out of the system from the, from the first day. Um, but, you know, start really small and, and figure out, you know, how do we start making sure we can get a cover crop in between each of our, um, our cash crops that are going in? What does that look like? And okay, now maybe we previously only had it in two years of hay. What does it look like if we did four years of hay? Um, and, you know, started implementing a little bit more like diverse um, hay mix into that. So, you know, we always suggest really starting super small. Like, you know, we would never say, yeah, buy all 10,000 acres uh-huh. farming it transit organically right now. Cause, cause that is not really a successful model unless you have millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> um, and right now lots of farmers don't have that. And I don't know any farmer who really has that. So um, it's just, yeah, we would say start really small, um, you know, and then also, I guess the other side of that is in a lot of these scenarios, it's, it's landowners, you know, it's not necessarily the farmer. So, um, you know, it sounds like this, this particular person isn't, isn't a farmer herself, Correct. Um, but maybe it works within the farming enterprise. Um, and so it, it's, it's also about finding people within your network that you want to 
that meet the goals that you're trying to reach. And so, um, you know, if you continue to re-sign leases with farmers without having conversations with them first about what expectations you have on your land, then the farmer is going to just continue business as usual. But if you incentivize that farmer to start implementing some conservation practices like cover cropping or like reduced tillage practices, or maybe figuring out some ways to implement a roller crimper to reduce the amount of herbicide to, to turn terminate the cover crop, you know, those sorts of conversations, if the farmer is open to it, then, you know, you can build a, a system together, both between the landowner and the farmer. But if you never have those conversations and you're not present at the table, then the farmer is just going to continue doing what the farmer knows best how to do. Um, so, yeah, we found a lot of success in, in just kind of asking the landowner to start opening up a conversation. And, and a lot of farmers have or a lot of landowners have had a lot of great success of, you know, the farmers like, oh yeah, I've been wanting to experiment with that thing, but you know, I just maybe didn't have the funding to it, to do it. Could you, you know, help me apply for an equip grant so I can uh -huh. you know start implementing cover crops or do you think you could, you know, buffer, um, you know, reduce the rent I'm paying on the lands and, and I'll start implementing those practices and, oh, I could really use, you know, a long-term lease agreement and then I'll help uh -huh. you so there's so many ways that that landowners and farmers can work together to reach those goals. Um, but it really just starts with a conversation first to figure out what it is that, you know, that they can do together to meet that. Yeah. And again, if, if the, the farmer's not willing to go there, you're fighting an uphill battle. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, we've, we've, we've been in tough situations like that is, you know, we want to, as a, as Rodale and as, as the consulting team, we want to support every farmer um, to farm, you know, in a, with conservation in mind, with organic in mind, with regenerative in mind. And, and sometimes all it takes is a little bit of education, but you're right. Sometimes it is an uphill battle. And um, as much as we, we'd never want to say, yeah, okay, maybe it's time that you find a new farmer. Cause that's the last thing we want to do. We don't want a farmer to be out of, you know, out of some land or out of a job or, you know, out of income because of, of the choice that the landowner is making. But, you know, sometimes it's time to move forward and and find a farmer who is willing um, to help the landowner reach those goals and and right now there's there's a lot of a lot of young folks that want to farm organically and want to farm land so you know how we how we can figure out how to hook those people up with the landowners who have the land and want their farm farm farmed that way is is really is a big question uh -huh. that i i think we are trying to to answer every single day uh-huh. Uh-huh. What was your, what's your favorite strategy or tool as you're trying to transition to organic? So I, <laughs> it's great. I, I absolutely love, like, I actually used this one today while I was sitting, I was sitting at, you know, a picnic table outside in the snow with a farmer. And I was asking him, you know, what, what would be, you know, if money wasn't an option, what would you, and this was in regards to a livestock housing structure. Uh -huh. um, and I, cause you know, he, he's, he has a tie stall barn. He is looking for ways to move away from tie stall barns. And I said, okay, if you, if you had unlimited money, unlimited resources, you know, what, what could you imagine as a livestock living area that would be 
um, really great for your animals as far as welfare goes, low, low cost for you, low labor for you, um, stays warm during the winter time and, you know, cool during the summertime and, you know, everybody's happy. And so, you know, we started talking when he's like, well, I'd want this and I'd want that. And, you know, in my head, I started thinking, okay, well, I know somebody who could potentially build something like that. And I know these, these people that have implemented a similar structure. So how do we, how do we hook those farmers up that have dreams of making it happen with other farmers who have made it happen? Uh And then, you know, what are the missing links? Maybe the missing link is funding. Okay. Well, how do we hook them up with a contract that can, you know, help alleviate some of those costs? So I really like to do a little bit of the dream big and then, you know, work the, the realistic side of it, because a lot of times it just, is that the farmer maybe doesn't know somebody who's already done that. And, you know, I worked before working for Odale, I worked in um, organic inspecting. So Uh I had the opportunity to see, you know, hundreds of different farms um, within Pennsylvania, New York, and Maryland. And so, you know, every time somebody's talking, oh, I want to, I want to implement this, but I'm not exactly sure. You know, I'm like, oh, I, I know a guy who actually did that. Let me see if you guys could hook up and, you know, have a phone call together. And, and sometimes it really comes down to like, I want to build an implement for my tractor and, and I just don't know how exactly to do it. And it's like, oh, well, I know a guy who, who builds implements for his tractor and maybe he would know. And so it's, it's about creating that network and finding, you know, the correct farmer to hook up another farmer with <laughs> to, to make yeah. it reality. Absolutely. Yeah. That I love that network aspect of things. And it's, it's awesome now with the network that we have and just the reach that we have, the, the connections that we can make. So I absolutely love that. Um, Emily, where can people find out more about you and the work you do? Sure. So uh, we have a website, it's Rodale Institute, and um, that's rodaleinstitute.org. And we have a consulting web page, and uh, they can contact us by emailing um, our consulting hotline, which is consulting at rodaleinstitute.org. Okay, very cool. Emily, any final thoughts? No, this has been wonderful. I hope that um, if any farmer is interested in transitioning, I I should note that we are offering free consulting services to farmers in um, Pennsylvania, all the way up to North Dakota and down to Kansas. So it's uh, about a 13 state region till it's all said and done between the upper Midwest and Pennsylvania. So if um, anybody would just like to to chat, to, to talk about their operation, to maybe talk about some innovative ideas they've wanted to implement for a while, but just maybe needed the encouragement to do so. Uh, yeah, they can call us and, and we'd love to chat with them. Very cool. Well, Emily, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate your time today. Thanks, Michael. Hey, farmers. Next week on the podcast, I'm joined by Stan Bialecki, who is farming in the northeast corner of Pennsylvania. They actually have a hydroponic operation with a little bit of field production. So I wanted to have them on, hear how they do farming hydroponically and what it takes to run a farm. They are full-time farmers. So it was really interesting to hear their journey and how they went from part-time and slowly scaled the farm up till it could support their entire family. So join me next week. Listen to Stan. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.